Welcome to the Candor Communication Podcast, where we discuss interpersonal communication and all the human stuff that gets in the way. Join us as we learn to get our message across with more courage, clarity, and connection. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Divan. Can you spot a liar? If I showed you videos of 10 people who were asked if they had cheated on a test, do you think you could spot the five liars? You'd be surprised to know that your ability to spot the liars would be little better than a coin toss. But this should not be a surprise. After all, we've all been burnt at some point. We all know what it feels like to be fooled. Why are we so bad at spotting liars? Why do we not notice when our partners are cheating? Why do we only detect fraud after the damage is done? Why do we fall for scams or get-rich-quick schemes? If you've read Talking to Strangers by Malcolm Gladwell, then you might already be familiar with the idea of truth default theory. And today I'm super excited to dig deeper into deception and truth default theory by talking to the very person who developed the theory. Dr. Timothy Levine is one of the leading researchers in the area of deception, and he is an expert on interpersonal communication. He is Distinguished Professor and Chair of Communication Studies at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Dr. Levine's teaching and research interests include deception, interpersonal communication, persuasion, and social influence. He has published more than 140 journal articles. His research has been funded by the National Science Foundation, Department of Defense, and Department of Justice. And his work has received press coverage from New York Times, Washington Post, NPR, NBC, CNN, Discovery Channel, and National Geographic. His latest book was released last year. I would highly recommend this book to anyone interested in the topic of deception. The book is called Duped. Truth Default Theory, and the Social Science of Lying and Deception. The book details Dr. Levine's 30-year program of research on deception, which has led to the development and testing of truth default theory. We hope you enjoy this eye-opening conversation with Dr. Timothy Levine. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the show. Ah, Thanks for having me. At the moment, you are the... Chair of Communication at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And I know we're going to talk about deception, but it really fits under this bigger banner of communication. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on why is interpersonal communication such an important topic for people to learn about? Oh, geez, there's a, there's a lot to say there. <laughs> as, I, uh, as I mentioned to you kind of before we, uh, before we started recording, I just uh, started a new book on uh, communication more generally, and chapter one was devoted uh, to this uh, idea of why is why is communication important, and uh, it's absolutely I think essential uh, to us as a species. So you know we humans are Homo sapiens. And uh, currently, we're the only uh, species of, of humans around. Uh, but that, that wasn't always the case. You know, there were Neanderthals and, and uh, lots of different 
kind of human species at one point. Uh, but somehow uh, we survived and they, they didn't. And so the question is, what, what kind of got us to the top of the food chain? And uh, the most kind of reasonable answer, I think, to that probably is that we were so good at working together. Right. Very few animal species can work together in large groups like, like we humans can. And even the ones they can tend to all kind of be uh, more directly related. Uh, but humans, humans are very good at, at working together. And not only that, we can uh, pass along knowledge. And we can uh, learn from other people who we've never even met. For example, you and I have never met before. Yeah. Uh, but through the, you know, the magic of modern technology, we can talk. You know, I can, I can write a book and you can read that. And this all requires communication. We as humans, you know, this got us from uh, hunter-gatherers, you know, uh, into subsistence farming, uh, into cities, into the Industrial Revolution, and into kind of the you know, modern information age. And it really, I think, all requires communication. Even more than that, I think it's very clear that having good uh, social integration and good relationships is uh, fundamental uh, to our health. Yes. Uh, you know, there's a strong relation, I'm sure you know it, between uh, mortality and social integration. Yeah. And based on my reading, it's it's about... The health advantage of social integration is about the equivalent to smoking or not smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Wow. Wow. Uh, it's, it's more powerful than the effects of obesity on mortality. Right. And of course, the way we have uh, social integration is through communication. That's right. Yeah. And, and then I guess to follow up on that, what are some of the most common causes in your experience for communication breakdowns? Probably too numerous to list them all. <laughs> if you had to pick your, your top two, then. <laughs> I think probably the top two, if you ask me this today, and it might, might be different than if you asked me a year ago, but I think disagreements about factual matters. Right. At least when, I, when I'm thinking about in America and the current political divide, there seems to be real disagreements, uh, not, not just about values, which is kind of understandable, uh, but disagreement about what the facts are. Right, because of fake news and, and all that. Yeah, there's fake news and all that. And in modern day America, you can live in very different media environments, uh, depending on where you get your news from. And uh, it's, it's almost like people aren't... Um, Aren't, aren't living in the same uh, on the same planet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think the other thing is um, problems of definition. So, you know, when I use a word, uh, what you understand that word to mean might be different than how I'm, I'm using it. Right. Yeah. So I would say differences of kind of factual knowledge and differences of disagreement 
are probably the big two and, and maybe difference in, in priority of values might be a third. Uh, I think the problems of definition is a really interesting one for me. Uh, often my wife will use a word and I'm just trying to think of the words she used only recently. And the meaning she had was a completely different meaning to the meaning I took. And it happened, it happened twice in the same day uh, that, you know, she had a meaning for a word and my meaning was a, a totally different meaning. And I looked at her strangely and, um, you know, it, it did, it was a little bit unsettling for a while. I thought, that doesn't make sense what you're saying. So I can really relate to that problem of definition um, concept as causing a breakdown in communication. One thing that comes to mind for me is often I think for, for me when communication breaks down with, you know, people I'm in relationship with is usually related to ego and getting defensive when my ego is under threat, right? And there's a story that I read in your book, Duped, um, about um, Heeson Park and how she challenged your research very early on. Can you maybe tell us a bit more about what happened there and, and how that kind of led you to uh, develop your theory on deception? So if you're working on research in an area, very often you, you won't be the only person to be doing that. So there's, there's different labs approaching the, the topic. But what can happen is, and, and people are aware of what the other labs are doing, and there kind of becomes this conventionalized way of uh, seeing things. And in, in this particular story, it was how to understand accuracy of deception detection. And the way everybody understood it as was like scoring a true-false test. So you show people some truths and you show them some lies and you have them evaluate what they think they're seeing, whether it's a truth or a lie, and then you score it as correct or not. And you get a percent that can range from anywhere between uh, zero and 100. Yeah. If this is how everybody did it and this is how everybody understood it. And there was just kind of this common mind block about this or this just everybody was looking at it one way. And, and along comes this brand new master student. He's Sun Park, who's now a professor at uh, Korea University in Seoul. And she says, and I'm, I'm teaching a class on deception and covering my research. And she says, you're understanding it wrong. <laughs> your own work. So my own work, your... <laughs> right? And this is, <laughs> this is a, a, a paper that I published in like the flagship journal of the biggest association of my field. Right. Um, it was probably a big part of the reason I got my professor job. It was it was a paper very very near and dear uh, to my heart, and this brand new student was telling me I didn't understand my own research. Yeah, and how did you respond to that? Because I mean that that would be a you know a bit of a knock to the ego, wouldn't it? You know, but there's more to it than just ego. You know, I've been I've been a professor for a while, and. Most of the time when I'm interacting with students, it's about issues that I've thought about a whole lot. And it's about issues that they're pretty new to. You know, this is, this is a research area I, I thought I understood pretty well. And I, I think at least at the time I had read pretty close to everything that had ever been done on this topic. Right. And it wasn't just my ego. This is how everybody saw it. Right. Yeah. There was ego attached to it, but I don't think it was just just ego. 
Fortunately, it was the sort of thing that I could, you know, kind of restructure my data set and kind of test, you know, in a research sort of way. So, you know, I, I listened to what she was saying. I was, I was pretty skeptical. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't think the, I think if you were just going to put the betting odds of, you know, student taking on professor on topic of their own research, right? Odds usually aren't in the student's favor. Yeah, that's right. Right? But, you know, sometimes improbable things happen. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Uh, So I went and checked, and lo and behold, um, when I analyzed, in this case, what was going on with truth separately from what was going on from lies, uh, it showed a very different picture. And it showed the exact picture that she was saying it would. Mm. And, and in fairness to her, this wasn't a, a observation uh, that she had just kind of armchair sitting there in class going, oh, you're wrong. Right. She had this idea. Then she went and read a bunch of other things right. to see if it looked like a good idea. Yeah. And only after she did that did she bring it up in class. So she wasn't wasn't coming into the into the interaction without preparation. And I checked and it came out just like she said it would. And it it's come out that way in every study I've ever done since. And it really changed how I uh, uh, how I looked at, at deception. And, and also I'm imagining would have had an impact on your um, relationship with the student. How did that relationship change or evolve over time? You know, you've got someone here who's testing you or challenging you how did that impact your the way you interacted from that moment well she certainly earned a a lot of respect pretty pretty immediately and uh uh these days we're married so it it worked out pretty well (laughs) (laughs) isn't that the best um story for how did you meet your wife oh fantastic and i mean before you said that it just reminded me of my my children who would challenge him, challenge me and children so often challenge you as a parent and and your first thought my first thought as a parent is what do you mean i don't know um and, and you know you know this this concept better and and and, you, and my first reaction is like how dare you or you know you, you can't be right i've i've got to be right but you know often a, a child can look at a situation completely differently with fresh eyes from a totally different frame of reference and it makes you think, and um, you know. It just reminded me of that story where you've got a student who's challenging you with all these years of expertise. Uh, and I'm sure there was a moment initially, it's like, "I beg your pardon," um, but then as you digest that thought, it's like, mm, you may be onto something. Yeah. So as this ties in specifically to communication, I think there's kind of two uh, points that are especially uh, important for understanding good, effective communication. Uh, one is the real value of being open-minded. Mm, yeah. And and the second is, I really think of uh, narcissism as the enemy of good communication. Yes. So if you get to be too full of yourself and you're too worried about your own image and your own ego, and you see everything through that lens, you're, I don't think you're going to be very good at 
relating to other people. <laughs> yeah. So people who are really high in on narcissism tend not to have empathy. And a little bit of empathy goes a long way uh, in communication. Yes. And being a good communicator is, is, has to be, to some extent, about the other person. That's right, yeah. And I'd want to go back a bit of, to create a bit of the context that really that, that story fits into. Because prior to, to that, the accuracy for detecting deception in the lab was pretty consistently around 54%. So just a bit better than chance, right? Right. And so, so the fact that you then looked at scoring lies separately to truths, what difference did that make? So 54% is the average when you do it like a true-false test across truth and lies. Uh, as it turns out, people are almost invariably truth-biased, meaning that they pick truth more often than lie. And this is true regardless of the ratio of truths and lies actually in the task. Um, and because they guess true more often than lie, they get the honest ones right, and they're missing the lies. So people are actually better than 50% at the honest things, and they're lower than 50% at the lies. And so was this a new finding in the field? Like, is this something that no one really thought of before? It was there. Uh, but no, nobody really made a big deal about it. People knew that there was truth bias, uh, but they didn't really put it together that really what was determining whether you were right or wrong was whether you're talking to an honest person or a deceptive person. If you happen to deal with honest people all the time and you always believe them, you're always going to be right. But if, if, if you happen to run into uh, a liar, then there's a good chance you're going to be wrong. And I don't think people understood, they, they always understood accuracy as something that existed in the person making the assessment of the other person and not as really being guided by the truth value of the incoming message. And so it, it put a different frame on it. And I want to pick up on a word you, you mentioned, you said when people guessed whether they were lying or being truthful and i guess the question i've got is 54 percent. if you look at an average between truths and lies why are we so bad at telling the lie like or picking up when someone is lying you would think that would be evolved to it'd be useful for us to know when someone's lying and therefore we would be more attuned to it you might think so uh, my my answer to this is because uh most communication is actually honest right so uh, believing other people works very well for us uh, most of the time. And, you know, going back to where we started, we're talking about humans are social beings and our whole lives are centered around coordinating and interacting with other humans. You know, if, if you're listening to this podcast and you're getting all wrapped up in is each sentence true or false, you're going to miss the whole point of the podcast. Yeah, right. And there's probably not any point of listening to it in the first place. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Right? So you wouldn't go to school if you didn't trust what the teachers or professors were saying. Right? You wouldn't read nonfiction books, you know, if, if there was only a 50% chance, right, that, that a nonfiction book was really nonfiction. Mm. We would bog down in, in, in uncertainty. 
Yeah, so, so you're saying it's it's a good thing that we are truth biased. It's a good thing that as humans we default to expecting to hear the truth as opposed to being very cautious or uh, on the on guard for a lie. Exactly. Truth bias is called truth bias, but I think it's a mistake to think of it as a bias in terms of some kind of flaw or mistake. Because in this case, the, the bias part uh, actually makes moves us closer to reality, not farther from reality. Right. So in, in deception detection experiments, there's an equal likelihood that any given thing you hear is going to be a truth or a lie. People tend to believe more often than not. People's tendency to believe is much closer to real communication than is the lab experiment that finds 54% accuracy. So because lying is not as prevalent in reality as in, say, the lab where you you know stacked it to be 50-50? Yes. So how prevalent is lying? It's really hard to know because it's very hard to get kind of random samples of all communication that you can check. As a proxy for that, we do uh, surveys where we ask people, uh, how many times have you lied in the last 24 hours? And typically the most common answer will be zero. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the next most common will be one. Next most after that is two. The average is about one and a half. Lies, lies per day. Yeah, one and a half lies per day. Uh, but 75% of people maybe uh, will be below average. And, and the reason is the distribution is really skewed. There's a few prolific liars out there that tell a whole bunch of lies. And the vast majority of people uh, tell zero, one or two on any given day. So would you say that we all lie? We all lie during either the day or during the week. And some of it may be not so much intentional, but we are lying. Uh, I get hung up on the word all. <laughs> yep. if, if we say the, uh, the vast majority, then yeah. So uh, to try to get at this, I just, it's, it's not published yet. I, I did a, a, a study where we asked the, how many times have you lied in the last 24 hours? Every day for, uh, for 600 people, every day for 90 days in a row. And, and, you know, the average in this particular time was about two, um, but most people were below average. There was, I think, two people out of 600 who claimed over 90 days uh, not to tell any lies. And is, is it true that they really didn't lie? Yeah, that's right. Uh, <laughs> but, but my guess is they didn't, they didn't lie very much. Yeah. So we have, you know, zero lie days, but we also have bad lie days where we might tell you know, one, two, or three, or four lies. Uh, then there's other people who tell a whole lot more than that. Uh, but there's a few people who tell less than that. Since there's, you know, a few people who tell, say, most of the lies, because you said it was skewed, right? Mm -hmm. Is it just a matter of we just lock those people up and just not let them out? Like, what, what, why do why do we lie in general? But why do those people who are lie so much, why do they lie more than often? Is that something that you, you've studied much? I have studied why people lie. And uh, lying's, you know, not random. Uh, people lie at very particular times and situations. And lies almost always happen when the truth is, for whatever reason, a problem for us. 
I'll, I'll tell you my, until recently, until, until eight months ago, this was my, my one lie I told on a fairly regular basis. So uh, I live within a block of a grocery store. Um, and because I live so close, uh, I just walk over and pick up a, what I need for the day. So I go almost every day. And the cashiers will always ask me, did you find everything you were looking for? And I would invariably say yes, uh, whether or not I did. And, and the reason I would say yes, when in fact, uh, you know, the blueberries I was looking for weren't stocked, is A, it was no big deal. I would just come back tomorrow and get them. But B, I didn't want to like hold up the line. And, you know, it's just, it was just this efficiency thing. Yes. But interestingly, what happened was with the COVID pandemic, there were some real stocking problems. And I started answering that question honestly. Right. Okay. And then the response was, yeah, these are the times and we could kind of joke about it and, and, and move on. So, so my number one kind of most common lie, the truth behind it uh, stopped becoming a problem uh, because circumstances changed. If you're qualified for a job, right, nobody will lie about not being qualified for a job they want if they are qualified. It's only if you're not qualified that you might lie. You know, if you didn't do anything wrong, you're never going to lie about doing something wrong, right? It's only when you did something wrong and you need to, you need to hide that. You know, if you like the gift uh, you got for Christmas, you're going to be perfectly honest in telling the person how much you like it. It's only if you don't like it that you might you might hide that fact. Yeah, this is a really good a good good point because you know I, I think of myself as someone who doesn't lie, but when you tell your story, if someone asked me for my opinion on whether they gave a good speech, uh, as you say, whether I like their gift, uh, and they speak to particular topics, I think the challenging process that goes through my mind is. I was brought up and taught not to be hurtful to others, brought up to be kind, to, to only say something if it's going to be positive and helpful, and to be very cautious saying something that's going to be brutally honest. Uh, but if I was to give my complete true opinion on whether, you know, if someone asked me my opinion of their presentation or their speech, then my honest brutality could hamper them from giving another speech or could really demotivate them. And I think that becomes a big fear factor in being completely honest, honest and transparent to particular questions you may be asked. Um, and it's interesting for me to class that, am I telling a lie or am I trying to protect the person and maybe build up the person? Like a, a child is probably a classic example. You don't want to be too honest to a child if you're trying to encourage them and build their confidence. At the same time, are you lying? What What are your thoughts on, on that? I don't equate brutal honesty with honesty. So if we take the, uh, you know, the bad bad presentation, for example, you know, so I can imagine, you know, being at an academic conference and seeing a, you know, a young scholar presenting their work and then asking me. And, you know, I, I didn't like it. I, I don't think I'm bound to say, oh, you're awful. You should find a new profession. 
yeah. you know, how can you live with yourself having done this <laughs> such an awful, awful, awful thing? Yeah. Right. So, you know, but I can say, uh, you know, you might consider, you know, doing this restructure. So I think what you could do is, you know, you can give some like really constructive feedback right. and, yeah. uh, and hope they don't ask the pointed question, well, what did you really think? <laughs> Which would put you on the spot. I'm kind of curious to kind of hear your thoughts on why, what, what are the most common reasons why people lie? But I also just want to maybe touch on that altruistic lies of when we think of protecting people by lying, is that really protecting them or can that be damaging too? You know, for, for example, you know, there might be someone who's, very ill and they don't tell their kids and you know to protect them in their mind but then it turns out that well the kids really wanted to know because then they could have done something so really they weren't protecting them are those altruistic lies really protecting the other person or is it more just a selfish thing on our part yeah my, my parents did the uh the lie about their state of their health really i'm pretty sure their their motivation was right that they didn't they didn't want to you know, burden us kids. Yeah. But, you know, from us kids' point of view, we we thought it was there was something relevant to know. Yeah. And even if we couldn't do anything, you know, part of you know, part of being family is knowing things like this. Yeah, just to be there, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a tough one. I'm 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 pretty sure that most people overestimate the altruism of their of their lies whenever i've looked for kind of what what motivates deception in, in various studies and it's not just my research uh the self-serving lies are more frequent right okay there's there's one really super common category of lies uh that i call uh avoidance lies the basic idea is somebody asked you to go do something so friends say, hey, you know, you want to go out and get dinner. And uh, for whatever, whatever reason, you, you don't want to go. And so, you know, you do the, well, I have other plans or I can't. I've got this thing I've got to do. Yeah. Um, and it's super, super common. Right. And it's it's unclear how much of that motivation is selfish. So am I trying to, when I... Am I trying to protect my image and how they see me? Am I trying to protect their feelings because I don't want to hurt their feelings that I can't go? Um, of course, both of those might be true. Or it might just be an efficiency thing. Kind of kind of like my uh, saying, I found everything I at the grocery store when I didn't. When you describe that, I think of myself, my wife often says to me that I don't answer a question. And I think from her perspective, she thinks maybe I'm avoiding the question. And so she doesn't know what my answer is. So I wonder if that falls in the category of an, of an avoidance lie in a sense. Now, in my mind, I don't necessarily know the answer straight away. So I'm you know, not responding and I'm mulling over it in my mind and I'm going to respond at a time I'm ready. She's expecting, you know, it's, it's, well, it's yes, you want to um, go out tonight or no, you don't. Um, but to say nothing, she finds frustrating and she views that as an avoidance. Um, whereas I'm v viewing that as 
I don't have a clear-cut answer right now and I'm dwelling on it. Um, does that come up in that type of category? So clearly we can deceive other people through kind of avoiding a topic or not answering a question. This reminded me of a, a, a professor I know who studies uh, political deception uh, and particularly evasion. Um, and he was doing this experiment where there's a, a reporter who's asking a politician a question and the politician answers something else. So kind of an off-topic, top of avoidance. Yeah. Um, so this this is a different category of thing than I was talking about with avoiding doing something with something. So it's kind of topical avoidance. And so the question is, is that deception? And this other professor was like, yeah, evasion is a type of deception. Mm. And I, I was expressing a little bit of doubt about this. So if, if, you know, you ask me a question and I change the subject on you. The question is, is who has the right to establish what we're talking about? Right. Okay. So, you know, if, if I'm a politician and I want to talk about my stuff and the reporter is not asking me the questions I want the reporter to ask, am I being deceptive by saying what I want to say? And I think it's only deceptive if the point is fooling people. Right. Okay. Right. So if, if the topic shift or the not answering is a sufficiently obvious kind of signpost in communication that nobody should be fooled by this, then it's not deception. It's just changing the topic. Right. And we change topics all the time. Or if by not answering, I am communicating, I don't know. Is it my fault for them not knowing that's what I meant? Right. So I, I think this is very, very gray area that's open to uh, different interpretations. The reason I want to bring up motive is because figuring out what someone's motive might be in communication could often be a key factor in triggering your suspicion to know if they are actually lying. Could you tell us a bit more about that? Because I know you've done you know, some work on what triggers our suspicion. How, how does motive play into it? Yeah. So, you know, if I'm right that lying is not random and, and people only engage in deception uh, when there's some kind of purpose to it or, or something to hide, then this suggests that uh, these are times when we should be on guard for deception. You know, so for example, you know, if people are trying to sell me their product rather than a competitor's product, uh, it might be, might be reasonable for me to give that a little bit more uh, a scrutiny. Or in, you know, the politicians, right? They, they want my vote and, um, and so does their competitor. And uh, they may or may not accurately uh, describe uh, their competitors' uh, strengths and weaknesses. So if, if you know that deception happens because of motive, then this suggests a time when we should turn off our truth fault or our truth bias and start uh, practicing a little more uh, critical thinking. And I'd really like to, to dig a bit deeper into truth default theory and what it is and how, how it's kind of changed the game from taking accuracy in deception detection from, say, just better than average, 
to be able to get 98% accuracy with professionals? Because I think that's that's kind of where you've been able to take it, right? Yes. Yeah. So the the basic idea of the truth fault is that normally when we're communicating, thoughts of uh, truth and falsity, honest and deception don't even come to mind unless those thoughts are triggered, unless there's something uh, in the communication or in the environment uh, that puts us on guard. So if you're in the truth fault, you're passively believing. So when in the truth fault, whether you're right or not, is entire, at least in the moment, is entirely dependent on whether you're dealing with an honest person or a deceptive person. Right, because you're going to believe them anyway. So you could be 100% right if you're dealing with honest people, but you can also be zero. Yeah, yeah. And one of my favorite examples from this is in uh, social science experiments uh, that involve um, deception but aren't about deception. Uh, so very often, one of the really kind of common things that will happen in a psychology experiment, for example, is there will be other people there who are pretending to be other participants, but they're really uh, working for the researchers and they're engaging in identity deception. They're really acting. And what you find in those experiments is people almost never pick up on the fact that these other people aren't who they say they are. So accuracy is very close to zero. Accuracy is not 54%. It's it's zero. They don't they don't ever pick up on that. And they wouldn't know unless they, you know, were told. So very oftentimes, you know, we're not zero, we're we're in very high accuracy because most of what we're hearing is true and we're just kind of passive leaving. So we're mostly right purely by chance. And and are, and are there cues that can help us to like, it, like, you know, like body language, gaze aversion, like when someone doesn't look in the eye, is that supposed to trigger us to kind of get out of the truth default? Uh, it can. Uh, the thing to know about those kind of nonverbal sort of cues, especially gaze, is they determine who we're going to be suspicious of. Uh, but they have almost no diagnostic value. Right. So then you can't tell if someone's lying by, by observing that. Yeah. So... Uh, trying to kind of detect deception by reading body language or by reading faces, uh, I think is a fool's errand. And this is one of the ways my, my research is really uh, different than, than most other deception researchers. Uh, instead, what I focus on is uh, content, actually listening to what people are saying, which you have to understand in context. So you really have to have a good knowledge of the situation you're in. And then you can assess the plausibility of what people say. Does it sound right? Does it sound too good to be true? Well, the best, the best thing you can do is do some research up front and ask people questions where you already know the answer. You know, so imagine I'm a, I'm a police officer and I'm, I'm interviewing a suspect and the suspect doesn't know that there was a video camera uh, active and I, I watched the crime, right? So I'm asking them what happened. If I've watched the videotape uh, and I'm asking questions about specific things I saw on the tape, I know for sure whether they're lying to me or not. Yeah. Right? So that's, that's the ideal way. Uh, if you can't do that, if you don't have the evidence up front, you can try to kind of fact check 
evidence, right? And, and newspapers and reporters do this with politicians all, all the time. You know, they'll take some statement that is said uh, at some debate or some rally or in some press conference, and they'll, they'll compare it to uh, the facts that they can find. And that, that's a really good way. Uh, then you can uh, uh, try various questioning strategies. And, and you can try to get people to be honest with you. So if I think, for example, that maybe you don't think I'm doing a good job on this uh, podcast, but you don't want to hurt my feelings and don't want to tell me, I can explain to you that, you know, this I'm going to probably do some more podcasts. So any, any feedback you can give me would be really useful to me. And maybe I could persuade you to be uh, more honest with me than you might otherwise be. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that, that would certainly work, um, that technique. I, I think if you had asked me prior to knowing your research and knowing your work and prior to this interview, uh, whether I thought I could identify someone who's lying, I would have quite confidently uh, thought that, yes, I can. Uh, of course, I can spot a liar compared to someone who's telling me the truth. That's what my, I think, base instinct, or at least in my mind, feels so I imagine, uh, you know, with your research proving that that is not the truth, that most people cannot spot a liar because we default to, to truth in um, people we are speaking to, has been quite groundbreaking and quite um, interesting and certainly challenging people's um, base state of thought. Uh, did you find you had quite a, a strong reaction to, to your research, whereas most people like me were thought, no, of course I can spot a liar if this person's untruthful, I can identify that quite easily. So just about everybody overestimates their ability to do it. <laughs> if, if I told people this 10 years ago, I, I encountered a lot of skepticism. Uh, for whatever reason, maybe it's the times, maybe it's just I have a lot better research now, but I found that in the last few years, people have been much, much more open to this. I've got much less resistance to the idea than I did at, at previous times. And I'm not 100% sure why that's the case. But, but people have really been quite open to, you know, challenging this, this thing that we all, we all believe. And I've, I've been kind of surprised by that because, you know, we all, we all tend to believe what we believe and, and we're pretty sure we're right. Could you tell us a bit about your, your cheating studies? So, which, which I think was a core part of developing your theory. Yeah, so so much deception research uses what I would call instructed lies. So I was I was reading a study uh, yesterday, where you know it was people had to tell guess or judge whether somebody was lying or telling the truth, and what the truths and lies were about was what the people had for breakfast. So half half the people were told lie about what you would have for breakfast. Uh, and the other half were told to be honest about what you had for breakfast. And I, I see a few problems with that. Uh, and that's kind of a, that paradigm is, would be less than ideal. Uh, for one thing, I'm not sure a lot of people lie about what they had for breakfast. <laughs> that's right. Um, right? And if you do lie to me about what you had for breakfast, I'm not sure I really care. Exactly, yeah, yeah. But more than that, people lie because the truth's a problem. So if, if I instruct you to lie, 
right, then the liars are going to be the people who are most conscientious. Right. Yeah. Right. But I think in 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 real life, right, it's the liars who aren't the conscientious people. <laughs> That's right. right. So I'm, you know, I, I don't equate lying and instruction following those. Those don't compute in my head. So uh, I tried to create a situation where uh, the truth was, where we really know what the truth is, uh, and the truth was a problem. Uh, so I would I'd typically uh, study first semester freshmen, university freshmen, and I tell them, hey, I'm a communication professor. I'm studying teamwork. Uh, here's this other person. They're going to be your partner. And we, we got really lucky. We got this money from National Science Foundation, pay you to be in the study um, and to be an incentive. And together, you guys are going to play a trivia game for a cash prize. And every question they get right, each of you are getting 5 or $10 per right answer. So we bring them in. They start answering the trivia questions. Between the third and fourth question, the researcher gets called out of the room uh, for about five minutes, and they're left alone. Uh, the answers are in a folder. Uh, the money's right there. Uh, so they all have an opportunity to cheat. And they all have an opportunity uh, they'll have an incentive to cheat, right? Because the more questions they get right, right? They, they're paid for this. And, and the questions are, are really hard. So uh, they're, not gonna make, they're not gonna make much money if they don't, if they don't cheat. And, and some of the times the, the partner who's really working for us uh, will say, you know, I don't know about you, I could, I could use some money. I think the answers are now. Uh, but the partner won't cheat unless the, unless the participant does. Uh, then the research comes back. The trivia game continues. After the trivia game, you know, we're communication researchers. We're going to uh, interview you about what happened in the study. So we take them in another room, put them in front of a camera, and, and they get questioned. And usually the question is done by one of my graduate students uh, reading scripted questions. And we, we change up what the questions are. Uh, but in one version, we flew in. Uh, professional federal interrogators and had them do the questioning. And uh, we videotape all of these. We have across all the different versions about 500 uh, tapes of people who are lying or telling the truth about whether they uh, cheated in this game. Uh, because they're college students, they're violating uh, code of conduct by cheating. Uh, nobody's ever expelled for cheating, but they could be. Um, they're also embezzling from federal grant uh they're potentially right so the, so the stakes are pretty high for them really yeah or, or might be right and we never threaten them about it per se we just kind of imply it but but they definitely have if they did cheat they, they definitely have a an incentive not to uh to lie about it and then and then when i'm doing my deception detection i show people videotapes of these people who were all denying uh cheating and ask, do you think this person's really a cheater or not? And did the, the federal agents do better than just normal people? And like, what, what was the difference? Like what, I guess, made the difference between the people who could accurately detect the deception and those who couldn't? The federal agents did amazing. Uh, they were about 98% uh, correct wow. at figuring out um, if cheating happened or not. And about 96% of figuring out who cheated. Was it the partner or was it the subject or was it in combination? And one of the things we did is we let them ask their own questions. 
There was another study that was also used a cheating setup, almost identical to ours. Uh, they used um, professional interrogators from the same group. I think one of the professional interrogators was in both studies, uh, but they only found 58% accuracy. One of the differences is uh, we let them script their own questions. The other study made them follow the script that the researchers wrote. Right. Okay. So the questions make the difference. So the questions the questions make the difference. The other big difference is uh, we counted uh, a confession that was believed uh, as right. So if, if somebody if somebody cheated and the interrogator got them to admit honestly that they cheated, uh, we counted and then believed that confession. Uh, we counted that as being right. Uh, the other researchers uh, threw that data out because the participants weren't lying. And uh, the professional interrogators got 85% of the cheaters to admit that they cheated. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. They were, they were really good at persuading people, to be honest with them. So, so if questions make the difference, what are the questions to ask? So if, if you know, I have this suspicion that someone might be lying to me, what, what are the questions that I could ask that can help me to identify whether the person's lying or not? It all depends on what the context is. Okay. So in the cheating game, you know, if I was doing it and, and not going for honesty, right? I was just, uh, the thing I would want to know is which questions they missed. If they got the questions right after the person left the room, but didn't get any of them before they left the room, that would, that would increase my suspicion quite a bit. But if they got the questions right when they didn't have the opportunity to cheat, right, then I would think, oh, they're just good at trivia. Yeah, right. Okay. So what would you do? You just present them with the evidence that, look, I can see there's a step change in your, 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 your performance here uh, and kind of present them with evidence that suggests that they're lying? I would probably first try to... Tell them to explain to them that it's really important for our research results to know if they cheated or not. So kind of pleading to their morality or, you, you know, like just saying that you shouldn't be lying, essentially just pleading almost. Yeah. Yeah. Give them a good reason for why they should be honest with me. And, and does that actually work? Yeah. Just like really? I, can get you, I can get you to give me honest feedback about my, my performance on your podcast by telling you, right, that I'm probably going to do more of these. And it would be really helpful for me to know. And that would probably work on you, I guess. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right? But it's the reasons are going to depend on the situation. No, definitely. I mean, a lot of these talk about having good questions and having, I guess, a know-how in how to interrogate to get the truth. It makes me think of there must be some classic cases where experts have got it completely wrong or people who are well-known who have fooled one way or the other um, the vast majority of people. And in preparation for um, this discussion, I watched the film about Amanda Knox. Mm-hmm. But if I think about her or anyone else that you think of well, why did experts struggle with um, people like Amanda Knox in, in, in knowing whether she was guilty or innocent? Well, I think there's, I think there's kind of two reasons in the Amanda Knox, uh, and I'm I'm basing my opinion on her, uh, kind of about Malcolm Gladwell's 
uh, telling of the story in talking to strangers. And at least according to him, uh, she she just didn't come off as as people expected uh, an innocent person would. So in my own research, what I find is I call them matched and mismatched uh, communicators. So matched communicators are pretty much, they seem like what they are. And mismatched people are uh, ones who uh, are opposite to what they, what they seem like. So if a really kind of smooth and extroverted liar will be mismatched. A, a really kind of socially awkward, honest person is mismatched. So, so the Amanda Knox case is, uh, is Malcolm Gladwell's example of a mismatched sender and how, how people got that wrong. So as in she looked like she was socially a bit awkward and therefore people thought she was guilty. Yeah, she, she wasn't coming off as upset about somebody getting killed and they pegged that lack of emotion as, as deception. So I guess because this you do spend a lot of time in your book talking about believability, and I think you've got a believability quotient. Because right. when I hear the Amanda Knox story, right, of someone going to prison for something they didn't do, you know, now ruled that she didn't do. I mean, that isn't that like our worst fear or my worst fear is like of being pulled into an, inter- an interrogation and accused of something I didn't do and then going to prison for that. How, how can we be more believable? Yeah, my book, I have these 11 kind of do's and don'ts about what makes a person uh, believable or not. And, you know, since almost everybody thinks uh, liars won't look you in the eye, of course, you want to have good, good eye contact. Uh, you want to be friendly and engaged and come off as spontaneous. You want to you want to convey confidence. And, and people generally believe you. So is, is confidence the main driver to that? Well, my findings suggest that all these things all work in combination. So, so one of the real problems with prior deception research is they look for cues kind of in isolation. So here's this thing that liars do or don't do. First, those things aren't diagnostic. But second, they're not given off in isolation. And also, they're not perceived in isolation. So our impressions of other people is much more of this package thing. I call it demeanor. Uh, so, you know, your, your body language and your facial behavior and your eye behavior and the tone of voice and your words, they all, they all weave together into, into a package to create uh, an impression. And, and there's definitely a package you can use you know, so when I'm going through airport security, right, and, and I'm, I'm interacting with, uh, with the security people, you know, I try to be very friendly, but not too talkative. I, I have like some kind of very, you know, I talk about how long the line is or something very routine. I'm engaged. I'm looking at them. I'm, right. I'm, I'm doing my best to come off as experienced, non-threatening business traveler who's just a nice guy and it's going to move along his way. Yeah, I, I can relate well to that. That's the, that's the kind of example that came through my mind. Often I'm, um, say if I was in the shopping center yesterday and I'm leaving a um, large electronics store and there are people at the security entrance and exit 
there's always a moment of social awkwardness, I guess, that I feel when I'm leaving a large store where it's almost as if you're leaving the exit point that I feel a sense of people are looking at me or judging me whether I've taken something or not. At least it's something that goes through my brain. And I think, do I need to behave a certain way to, for them to, to look at me and feel comfortable that I can walk through? And, you know, I tend to give them eye contact and I tend to walk out um, of the store. But there's that moment of, are they looking at me um, to decide whether I have stolen something or not? Uh, it is always a thought that goes through my mind, um, which can, uh, I think as you think about that, can create a sense of awkwardness. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, ironically, right, if you're feeling that awkwardness and it shows, right, they're more likely to actually suspect you. <laughs> yes. Right? So, so you need to kind of, fortunately, most of us are like really good at, at keeping our, our inner feelings uh, to ourselves when we need to. You know, so you want to walk in and out of a store like you belong there, Right. And like you've got nothing to hide and, you know, you're just a, a good customer and they should be happy to have you in the store. And, you know, you're, you're interested in things or you're right. Uh, and you don't want to be giving off. I'm nervous or I don't belong here. Uh, cues. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it's not just one cue. Again, it's this whole how you're carrying yourself. Yeah, I mean, there was one time I remember a lot of um, checkouts now are automatic checkouts where you've got no one and it's um, you scan something and then you put it in your bag. And I remember one time where I was doing the shopping and I'm a bit slower than, say, my wife in going through the checkout. And um, one time this lady came up to me and I felt like she was questioning whether I had done it properly. And I was extremely, extremely insulted <laughs> that... She was going to ask me a question on how I'd positioned something um, th through the checkout. And I took a lot of offense to um, her question, which I I think is a interesting social situation when um, someone's checking you and you, you haven't done anything wrong, but that accusation, right. um, and you think of much more extreme cases like Amanda Knox where someone's accusing you of um, doing something very bad, you know, surely that would make you very, very angry. And, and, and this is tough, too, because some people will see the, the indignance as, oh, you're protesting too much. Yeah, yeah. If, you, if you're really innocent, you wouldn't be protesting so much. Yeah. But, but other people will see if you don't protest, right, they think that's a sign of, a sign of guilt. So that's, that's a really <laughs> tough one. Yeah, yeah. I, I tend to always like to kind of frame it as, oh, did I do something wrong? Can you show me what's the right way? Right? And, and that has the, uh, that, that kind of circumvents that, that potential misreading of indignance. I guess after this, uh, researching deception for, what is it, about 30 years, right? Yeah. How do you, I guess, navigate this tension between the efficiency of having a truth default versus the suspicion to not be, I guess, caught out by a harmful lie? Because I guess, do you find that you're more cynical and more, and more suspicious of people having studied deception for so long? And, and how do you kind of get the benefit of that efficient communication while at the same time not 
being lied to? How, how do you manage that in your own life? This is such a great question and it's so difficult. You know, so it's, it's important to keep in mind that the point of my research is that, you know, kind of trusting other people is good. You should give people the benefit of the doubt. On the other hand, after studying this stuff, I pick up on, you know, if, if I ask a question and somebody do, doesn't quite answer it, or they're a little vague in their answer, um, or they seem to be leaving a little thing out, I, I pick up on this. Um, you know, and it's it's really kind of an occupational ha- hazard. <laughs> I bet, yeah. And and I try to. I try to kind of practice what I preach and take the lessons of my own research to heart. Try to be very selective in kind of applying lie detection things to situations where the truth is really important one way or another. Okay. Right. So, you know, I I, kind of ask myself, does it matter? And if it doesn't, don't worry about it. And, And the other thing is, is most deception kind of comes out in the long run. So if I'm, you know, if I'm not investing a lot of money, you know, there's really something really at stake. I try to just let it go. And and most of the time when I when I actually do catch people lying to me, I don't I don't ever say anything about it. I just kind of make a mental note and and move on. Have you been burned? Have you been really badly deceived in? Uh, a time or times in your life that you may not have referred to already um, that has, I guess, prompted you and pushed you more in, into into this field? Of course I've been burned. Uh, I think probably everybody has. You know, if you haven't, good, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think everybody's been burned. Uh, I don't think that was... Uh, that was my motivation at all for, so in, in the book, I told the story of how I got, got involved in deception research. And I was working with uh, one of my professors when I was a grad student. And my professor who, uh, who I was working with got burned and that got him into it. Uh, what drew me to uh, deception research is uh, the kind of reoccurring theme that we've been having, that in when it comes to deception, nothing is really as it seems. So what I like about Deception is the puzzle, and I, I like that it's not well understood because uh, that that gives me a chance to really kind of make a splash in my research. And especially in, in that study, I think the thing that I found surprising, right, because that study was where you looked at how well you know someone, whether that has an impact on how well you can see if they're lying, right? Right. Good. And so how, how did that surprise you? How did that study surprise you? So those particular findings really didn't because I had read a previous study and knew what was coming. That was actually the inspiration behind the original. So this is the professor who got burned by, uh, by a girlfriend uh, who got away with parents' credit cards. And it was, it was a really bad. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> it was a really bad burn. Yeah. And, and he was wondering how he could be so fooled by somebody he thought he knew so well. So I think he really kind of went looking for that, uh, kind of love is blind uh, hypothesis. So I, I think it was more, more kind of a, a confirmation 
than 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 a surprise. So, so what was the finding? Just just for for people who might not be um, familiar with the study, what was the the outcome of that study? Uh, so, generally, the closer you are to somebody, uh, the more you think you can tell when they're lying. The more you think you can tell when they're lying, the more you tend to believe them, regardless of whether they're lying or telling the truth. And the more you believe them, the more you miss the lies. So the, the, the better you know them, the harder it is actually to, to know when they are lying because you just inherently trust them. Yeah. So it makes me think, Dad, is Santa Claus real? <laughs> Dad, is the, is the tooth fairy real? And, and, I, and you know, for my wife, it's very important that um, those, I don't know, cultural traditions be upheld. And, you know, she does her best to make sure they're well-believed. And and I, you know, my my daughter's um, ten now, and she asked me that again this Christmas, and she's not believing that Santa is real, but she still wants to ask me because she knows that I want to tell the truth, and I won't answer that question. <laughs> I'll find a way to avoid the question because I know it's important for my wife to upheld, um, but I don't want to say yes he's real and one way i'll answer the santa claus one is i'll tell her the story of um saint nicholas and how he used to give presents to poor children and about that story as a way of me addressing that question um and so i wonder i'm not sure if you have children but if you do or did have children how would you address those questions (laughs) if i were in your shoes (laughs) <laughs> I would probably have the secret talk with my daughter about how important it is for mommy that we believe this. <laughs> <laughs> and it can be our secret. Um, and we are going to, for her, because we care about mommy, we're going to pretend like Santa Claus is real. I'm liking that one, especially as she gets older. <laughs> right? And I think, I think especially as she gets older, that one will age well. Yes. And, it will, it, will and the younger one. it will facilitate bonding, but it will also yep. facilitate bonding throughout the family. Right? Mm. Because mommy's important to both of us. But <laughs> <laughs> well, what would my wife think about this when she finds out? <laughs> It's it's also great because I think it would be hard to be mad at you about that, <laughs> yeah. right? Because the force yeah. of it is mommy's important yeah. to us. That's right. Right? Can't be mad about that, can you? Not for too long. Surely, surely not. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Tim, I want to come back to something you said a bit earlier when you said you don't call people out when you realize they're lying and the stakes are low, but you take note of it. And uh, I want to come back to, I guess, the question about, you know, those few prolific liars. How important is character or knowing someone has lied before to your judgment of whether to trust a person in the future? Very important. So, you know, any given lie probably doesn't say much about them as a person, right? Because we know that the lying is dependent on the situation. Uh, but in cases where there's patterns of lying, it, it seems to me that that's very good to know um, because we need to be on guard, right? 
and we're at risk. I look more for kind of pattern, and that's why I kind of file things away. Because if this is kind of a reoccurring thing, then then I then I try to turn off my truth to fall with them. And so it'd be pattern, but would it also be, I guess, the damage of past lies, perhaps as well? Uh, it, it could be. I don't. I don't want to get too political here, but you know, in, in America, there's you know a particular politician who's had uh, more than twenty five thousand false statements documented uh, by the fact checkers. Uh, right, yeah, yeah. So you know, it's, it's the deception research in me. You know, if you know somebody who's like said twenty five thousand things that are false, you know, at twenty five thousand and one, you might be a little skeptical. Yeah. Right. I want to just end up with a question a bit more open-ended and just to ask you, what is this, what is something about deception that you wish more people knew about? I think probably two things. One, that, that people are probably more honest than you think. Most people are probably more honest than you think. People lie less than you think they do. And, and second, that uh, this whole idea of the cues, particularly the nonverbal cues, is really folk wisdom. And it, it needs to be understood as kind of a folk myth with about as much kind of validity as the ancient Greek gods. <laughs> right. Okay. Or Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Tim, thank you very much for, for making the time to, to talk to us today. Was there a place that you would want people to um, to go to reach out to if they wanted to know more? Or I mean, obviously, there's your book, Duped, that I would recommend people would get into. I think it really gives a good landscape of deception research in general, but then also really explains your theory very well. And I think you've done a really good job to lay out that theory. So I definitely recommend that to people. And also Talking to Strangers, which you've mentioned, uh, which is by Malcolm Gladwell, where your work is also referenced. But where would where could people go to to know more, or if they wanted to to reach out for some reason? Uh, so you know, my book is really the go to place for my research on deception. I have a webpage. It's uh, Timothy Levine at Squarespace dot com, and I have you know kind of some bio up there and a link to my book and the Google a link to my Google Scholar page, and I've uploaded a bunch of my. Uh, academic journal articles and some some other things, and uh, my page also has my uh, my email address, which people could uh, uh, reach out to me by uh, my Gmail account. Great, Tim. Thank you very much for making the time. I've really enjoyed this conversation, and yeah, thank you for for sharing your findings and for this conversation. Thank you very much. It was it was a blast. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me. Thank you, Tim. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Candor Communication Podcast. We'd love to hear what you think about this episode. You can connect with us by visiting our website, candlepodcast.com, where you can find show notes for this episode, or you can connect through our social media pages on Facebook or LinkedIn. Also, please remember to take a minute to rate and review the podcast. It really helps us to get the word out. Thanks. See you next time.